Welcome to Spill the Tea, a bi-weekly download of life, liberty, and the latest in culture and news with your hosts, Dr. Robert McClure and Sal Nuzzo. Hello and welcome to this edition of Spill the Tea here at the James Madison Institute. I am Bob McClure, President and CEO of JMI. With me today is Logan Paget, our uh, director, our vice president of communications and public affairs. Sal's out, Bill's out, so we've been kind of doing a revolving door. Logan, welcome. We're glad you're here. Thanks. Glad to be back. It is. It has been a marathon. It's been quite yes. a sprint. You know, we've had um, committee weeks, really uh, starting before Christmas. Then there was a break for the holiday, and but since then, wow, we've just been moving along with a press conference or a press release or something going on every day. Yeah, last time um, I, we were we had this podcast, it was Bill and I, and I mentioned that I had a conversation with Senator Corey Simon, and we were just asking him, you know, what has surprised you most about this new position that you're in? And he said that everybody had told him it was kind of like a marathon, um, but he said, in, in actuality, it's really more like a sprint right. <laughs> because it seems like every day there's a new uh, new press conference right. with a huge package um, that gets filed um, or a lot of really uh, important issues that are already moved through committees that mm-hmm. are ready for a, a full vote um, when session starts on Tuesday. Yeah, there's there seems to be a ton of energy. Uh, by leadership, uh, certainly with the speaker and the Senate president, and obviously the governor is full of full of energy. But you know, Sal and I have done already press conferences on tort reform, which we'll talk about in just a mm-hmm. second. School choice. Uh, yesterday, I testified. This is a national issue before um, uh, a a group in Washington that oversees higher education, Naziki mm-hmm. or Nasiki, excuse me, is the acronym. And so, uh, you know, Sal's traveling. I mean, there's so much going on here at JMI, not only in the state with the tremendous energy by leadership in the state, but the fact that uh, JMI really has a national presence. We're we're constantly uh, working in multiple other states while focusing on Florida. Mm -hmm. Well, we talked a little bit last episode about some policy areas that folks need to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. So I think we could hit the the high notes on some of those, but there's been quite a few developments. So last episode, we talked a little bit about um, a tort reform package that was going to be rumored um, to be filed. Now it has officially been filed and it's even moved um, through its first uh, committee on Friday that lasted three and a half hours (laughs) with like 300 people that signed up to speak. Sal and testified. So, yep. And then there was a big press conference with the speaker's office um, shortly after. But um, it, it's a pretty wonky issue. But just to put it in perspective, we like to say that Florida is the the best state for everything, for higher ed, for K through 12, for health care. For, Florida is not the best state when it comes to tort reform. And right. it's just because of our terrible litigation environment that we have. So Florida actually has the nation's second highest auto insurance premium um, trailing behind Michigan. So that means that people in Illinois and California can brag about how cheap their auto rates are in comparison to Florida. And I don't like that. Right. <laughs> I don't want them to brag about anything in, in the sense that they're better than Florida. Right. We always point to California and Illinois as the poster children for everything mm-hmm. that's wrong with big government and regu- regu- the regulatory state and those kinds of yeah. things. But in this case, you're absolutely right. And 
the vast majority of the higher auto rates, mm-hmm. uh, the vast majority of that is due to uh, our lit- litigation environment right. that we live in. Every billboard, every bus that you see. I mean, you, you know, can't drive right. down I-10 or even any local road and 95, see and yeah. go more than a few miles without seeing a guy holding a big check that's right. saying, Billy got me $350,000. Right. And so that is the, the situation that we're in. And I think just to paint a picture of, of how this ends up happening, let's say you have a slip and fall at work um, and you know you, you believe that JMI is in the wrong. You go to a wrongful um, you know, slip and fall auto uh, accident attorney and they say, okay, we're going to take your case. We would like you to see this special doctor that we have. Right. You know, even though you have private insurance or, or even people that have Medicare, right. we would like to see, you know, this guy's the best in the business and we want you to see this guy. So you do, you rack up, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in, um, in uh, healthcare fees and then it goes to trial. Well, by Florida law, the jury is not allowed to see the fact that you had separate and apart insurance from the doctors that you right. used. All they're allowed to see is this is the money that was racked up in cost and this is what you're entitled to. So it's $350,000, but in actuality, Medicare or your private insurance would have paid for most of that. Right. And so th- that's the situation that we're in. Right. And it happens over and over and over again. And so really that money is getting... Um, factored into all of the premiums yeah. that we're that we're paying here yeah. in Florida. Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. And but I will say, uh, there, you know, the speakers on this, uh, he and Sal and a new number of other um, friends of ours had a huge press conference. So this is a high priority for the speaker, uh, legislative leadership. So I do think I'm, I'm hopeful, and the governor mm-hmm. too. I'm hopeful we're going to see some action this session that that really addresses the litigious society that we have in Florida. And of course, there's always going to be situations like businesses do are in the wrong sometimes. Sure, and course. there's always going to be situations like that. But right now, there's there's a lot of right. um, a lot of uh, corporate greed yeah. and and um, and attorneys that are just playing the system right, with right. The, the cards that they're dealt. That's right. Yeah. Um, so we're hopeful about uh, meaningful tort reforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, another big issue, uh, most recently, there's a bill to expand the parental, parental Bill of Rights to eighth grade. Talk yeah. a little bit, remind people a little bit about the Parental Bill of Rights, and then you know we can talk about moving it to eighth grade, which I think, you know, as a former school teacher, I think, Eighth grade and ninth grade are almost virtually interchangeable in terms right. of age and maturity. Right. Uh, I think seventh grade's different. I think mm-hmm. you, when you get to sixth and seventh grade, those kids become much younger. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you, I, I think this is actually probably a good thing to expand it to eighth grade. But talk, yeah. remind people about well, the parental bill of rights. This was something that made national headlines last session, where it was inappropriately inappropriately named the "Don't Say Gay" bill, even though. The word gay, homosexual, nothing nothing is mentioned in the bill. What it aims to do is to make it to where teachers cannot talk about sexuality, regardless of heterosexuality, homosexuality, with any student under K through third grade. And so um, if a student has a particular pronoun that they would like to use that is different than their, their, um, uh, their sex or their gender, 
the the teacher is not going to affirm that because right. they are eight years old, and so that is not something that we should be having teachers. Um, um, Doing that is something between parents and therapists and guidance counselors right. and things like that. And so um, now this bill aims to expand that to eighth grade, where teachers are not going to, there's going to be nothing in the curriculum that is talking about right. this. Um, and I mean, I know JMI didn't get super involved in this um, uh, publicly, but me personally, I have two little kids and I could not imagine them. Um, being taught something like this that I did not agree with um, in their curriculum. So it'll be interesting to watch. Yes, yes, it will. Moving on to diversity, equity, and inclusion, oftentimes known as DEI. Uh, The Board of Trustees at New College of Florida, which is uh, the the president there temporarily Mm -hmm. is Richard Corcoran, former uh, Speaker of the House, former uh, Commissioner of Education. Uh, It's the smallest campus in the state university system, uh, but it, they voted to eliminate DEI uh, initiatives and offices, including the Office of Outreach and Inclusion. I say that in air quotes. Inclusive excellence responsible for all the diversity programs. So that's been eliminated. One of the things I've seen in the national news is as we see the economy shrink and jobs are being cut, you are seeing corporations, their first cut is the diversity, equity, and inclusion office because we all know it adds no value, right. it's zero. It's not necessary. It's zero value. It is all virtue signaling uh, on the part of corporations, but when they have to actually do the math in this economy, those are the things you're seeing cut first, and, and um, President Corcoran has done that at New College. Well, and I think it's a good... Uh, we, we've done a lot on higher education and viewpoint diversity, and it's an awesome first step in trying to make sure that students feel comfortable to express their viewpoints on college campus. And I know um, we're actually, I don't know, even know if I'm allowed to say this, but we're going to have a new study come out in the next couple of weeks that addresses this issue again. Um, in, in 2021, they passed legislation that said that students have the option to take a survey that um, tells folks whether or not they believe when they're on campus that right. their, their viewpoints are uh, respected and they feel safe and they're able to disagree with people. And so that was passed in 2021. And um, the the higher education union has tried to discredit this and yes. say this is not anonymous and don't take it. And, um, and as a result, less than 3% of students took it uh, right. last year, and I think only 9% of staff. But even among those students that did take it, they have said there's only like 30% of students that said, yes, I feel like I'm allowed to express my views if the, if I disagree with my professor or, or another student on campus. Right. And so um, I think that this is a good way where um, colleges like uh, New College, Richard Corcoran, UF, um, with their new president and trying to get more people on campus that say we are not going to um, subscribe to this DEI ideology. We're mm-hmm. going to make sure that higher education and the institutions we have in Florida are places where um, people feel like they can express right. their views safely right. and appropriately. Right. Uh, legislative salaries. This has not come up with term limits. We don't have quite the problems that other states like New York and Michigan have where they have full-time legislatures, but uh, Representative Antone filed a bill to initiate a study looking at how much Florida legislators, leadership, 
cabinet officers make in comparison to the other 49 states. Not sure that's relevant, but that's what Rep. Antone decided to do. It's kind of apples to oranges. It is. Florida is a part-time legislature, right. and you have other uh, states that are not. Right. And so, of course, that's why their salaries are a little bit more. Right. But purpose of the salary for Florida leaders is because it is viewed as a part-time job, as you just referenced, and therefore it shouldn't be seen as a career, even though you and I can name dozens and dozens of legislators, politicians mm-hmm. who make that their career. Mm-hmm. Uh, even within the state of Florida. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. But there are opinions that the low salary is encouraging only independently wealthy people to really be able to run for the legislative seat. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I can see both sides of it, but again, it is a part-time job. This yeah. is a job where th- we are in session for uh, nine weeks, and so, and then of course, there's pre-committee yeah. um, weeks, and and there's um, there's campaigning and all of that. But ultimately, the the being a legislator is being. A, a servant and being a, um, a representative of your constituents and you you shouldn't be doing it for the money you right. should be doing it to serve your constituents and to give back to your community right. and um, and it is a part-time job it's it's not something that they're doing even half of the year right right and I think it's critically important that we have term limits I think that's made a huge difference in the state of Florida and also that it is part-time because if it wasn't part-time, They'd be sitting around looking for stuff to do. And when politicians are looking for stuff to do, they overtax and they overregulate. Um, the other thing I think is interesting about this is that I don't know if, if it if it's wealth or 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 not or poverty. I don't know if that's it, but one thing we could use fewer of in the legislature are lawyers. Mm-hmm. We have way too many lawyers in the legislature, uh, and it'd be nice to have small business owners. Um, uh, men and women that that um, you know work uh, or or stay at home parents, teachers, that, yeah, teachers, police yes. officers, yes. that kind of thing. Yes. But I don't nec- I don't agree with the notion that it just basically is making the independently wealthy right. the only ones that can run because we have we have consistently had um, men and women in the legislature in their twenties right. that are college students that, um, decide that they again, want to give back to their community, serve their constituents, and they go out and they have to campaign and raise money right. in right. order to get elected. And then they are making $29,000 a year. Right. And so, uh, I mean, I don't agree with that, agree. that notion agree. at all. It's just a matter of, um, what's in your heart, right. hopefully what's in your heart and, and, um, your servant heart. Moving on to Reedy Creek. Now, Reedy Creek, for our listeners who may or may not remember, was the special taxing district that the Disney World has held virtually since its very uh, beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they were able to uh, establish their own regulations, their own mm-hmm. fire codes, their own taxing district yep. components. They were exempt from building yeah. codes, right. fire codes. They were codes. basically yep. their own uh, little universe inside the state of Florida. Well, the governor, Governor DeSantis, signed legislation ending the Reedy Creek District. It's now the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District, uh, and it stopped Disney's self-governing status, which I think is really interesting. It stopped their exemption from the Florida Building Codes and from the Florida uh, Fire Prevention Codes. Um, It ended, ended Disney's exemption from the state regulatory reviews and approvals, ended their secrecy by ensuring transparency and making sure Disney pays their fair share of taxes. 
municipal debt will be paid by Disney, not Florida taxpayers. So the governor was not playing around when he wasn't bluffing when he did this, you know, made this decision last year based on Disney's, um, I would say, faux opposition to uh, the uh, Parental Bill of Rights and their uh, mislabeling of 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 really what the as you've already expressed what mm-hmm. the parental bill of rights law was the governor was not fooling around he he followed through right and i mean it, regardless of how you feel about the the back and forth debate between DeSantis and Disney i think there's a oh, there's a bigger picture here about um just principally principally i don't think that we need to be having um any special right. tax districts right. go on for decades i think right. that there should be a sunset on all of these and making sure that there are thousands of them across the state of Florida, right? The yeah. taxpayers are not on right. the hook for, right. um, for this. Right. And I think obviously the Disney reading Creek special tax taxing district is the poster child for what's going on, but there are thousands of these all across the state and it really just leaves all Florida taxpayers holding the bag. Yeah. So, yeah. um, moving just briefly, we're going to, we're going to come back and talk about some ridiculous bills, but, the budget proposal that was released, mm-hmm. $114 billion, which would be roughly a 4% increase in the state budget, which is is much lower than the population increase in the mm-hmm. state of Florida over the last year. Um, but and it's just a proposal, so it could go right, higher, yeah. it could go lower. Yeah. You know, I know they're waiting on numbers to make sure they have money here, there, and yonder. But what I think is interesting, Logan, is that we have more population than the state of New York. Uh, we passed New York, what, three or four years ago, and we continue to grow. Uh, they lost an electoral vote. We gained electoral vote. I would argue we probably should have gained two. They should probably should have lost two, but we won't go there with the, with, uh, the politicization of the census. And yet, New York State's budget is double. It's 220. Ours is 114 mm-hmm. proposed. There's just $220 billion. So imagine the IRS, the U.S. Postal Service, and the DMV in your back pocket twice as much as it already is now. That's just a stunning number. Right. I think when you look at the population growth, I mean, their population is moving to Florida. Right. Um, And then you look at inflation. I think $114 billion is extremely conservative when you you compare it to New York. And yet we are still able to... cut taxes. There right. is still a $2 billion right. tax cut package in in the overall budget proposal. And so, um, you know, some of them are permanent. Some of them are in the form of tax holidays. And so um, some of the permanent ones um, are baby and toddler items, scri- uh, cribs, strollers. These are all coming um, right after I'm out of the baby stage, right, which I'm not course. bitter about yeah. at all, but it's okay. Um, and then one that I love is gas stoves. The governor very clearly said, that, um, you know, go out and buy a gas stove if you want to, and you're not going to pay taxes on it because we're not going to, we're not going to play that game, right. which I love. Right. Um, and then some of the tax holidays, I mean, any, any, if there is something that, um, that we tax, there's probably a holiday for it at some right. point throughout the year. So we've got children's books and, um, and toys, pet food, power tools, dental hygiene, appliances. So um, in addition to that, there's a 5% pay bump for state employees, an increase on correctional officers to $23 an hour. 
um, uh, bumps to visit Florida. They're moving, um, you know, again, just a proposal, but they're moving to 100 million versus 75 million. So again, trying to increase more people visiting Florida, make this your home, that kind of thing. Um, There would be some people listening to this podcast that would be against visit Florida. We mm -hmm. have to acknowledge that there would be those that would say that's not the role of the state. Acknowledge right. that. We yeah, we're not that. too far away from that debate that happened right. a couple right. of years ago. But um, in addition to that, there's an increase of $200 million to teacher funding mm-hmm. as well. And so, um, yeah, all of these things in comparison to what is going on in New York, where their mm-hmm. budget continues to increase at, I would say, a not-so-conservative rate and yet they're losing people. Right. They have a terrible education system. They have a terrible crime problem, um, and we don't. And they have a they have a horrible revenue. Like they're losing revenue, right. and it's counterintuitive. They just think we'll raise taxes, but you can't. Mm-mm. You can't raise taxes into it's it's almost always with government. Not almost always. It's a it's a spending problem. It's never a revenue problem. Yep. So so a couple of bills that I always think are fun to talk about are bills that that get introduced and right off the bat you know that they're probably not going to go anywhere (laughs) and some of them are good um, in theory and some of them are not Um, one that I think um, made me laugh that I think it he is coming at it from good intentions, um, is one that Senator Angolia filed. Call, it's, it's being called the Ultimate Cancel Act. Mm-hmm. And so what it would do is decertify parties that officially supported slavery. Now, the bill does not name the Democrat Party by name, um, but I think we all know that there is um, misinformation and miseducation among people where um, or, and people that are members of the Democrat Party in particular that think that Republicans were the one that pushed slavery. And right. that's not the case. What, the reality is, is that Republicans were the ones that freed the right. slaves. Right. Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. Um, and then even when you move into the... the um, Civil Rights Act era in the 60s, um, more Democrats opposed that piece of legislation than Republicans. And so, um, again, I don't think it's going to go anywhere, but I think that there's some good intentions behind it. Yeah, no doubt that the uh, senator is trying to make a point. It's clear, obviously, as you said, Lincoln was a Republican. All of his cabinet officers, uh, all of his legislature, or legislature, most of the Congress post- uh, Civil War that pushed through all of the um, ending of slavery and restoration of rights and all of that were by Republicans. The Jim Crow era was right. actually driven by uh, the Democratic South mm-hmm. um, and big government, by the way. They right. used big government to enforce Jim Crow uh, and the Democratic Party was responsible for it. And to your point, in the 60s, as a percentage, and that's what's important because there were more Democrats in Congress than Republicans, but as a percentage of the party, more Democrats opposed the Civil Rights Act mm-hmm. than supported it. You're absolutely right. And and the senator's kind of, you know, poking his finger in the eye of, you know, the left that likes to kind of, uh, you know... Um, Tell us what's right, and you know, again, virtue signal. There's that word about what they know, to, what they think to be true, and it's just simply not true. Yeah, a couple other ones that I found um, 
this one actually made national headlines um, just because uh, I think of how close it hits to home. But it would be a ban on dogs hanging their head out that? the window. Why? I guess because it's distracting to drivers. I don't. I'm going to jail tomorrow if right. this thing passes because my dogs are always. You know, when they're in my car, they're they're hanging their head out the window. Can't and we just give them that little piece of joy? Right, they're he, they're on this earth for fifteen right. years. I mean, can <laughs> we not just give them a little bit of joy, right. um, letting them hang their head out the window? It's and a stick small their request, <laughs> right, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, I think actually the senator that um, filed this did come out and say that they were going to look at amending it a little bit, even okay. though, again, one of those I don't think is going to go Can you anywhere. imagine if we had a full-time legislature, the kinds of yeah. crazy bills we'd be having introduced? Yeah. So. Another one that I saw um, that I think is probably not going to go anywhere, but that uh, I agree with is there's a bill to um, make it to where anyone driving in the left-hand lane, if you are not passing... Um, it will be against the law. Um, and I love that because it makes me so mad when yeah. you're driving the left. I mean, I commute 50 miles to um, to the office when I'm in the office and constantly I'm going behind somebody and they're going either at the speed limit or under the speed limit right next to somebody else and I can't pass and it drives so are me you, nuts. Are you kind of like a lead foot Lucy? Do you drive... Uh... Well, the, the commute that I have, again, when you're on I-10 and I-75, it's different because you're flowing with traffic. Right, right, and if right. there's traffic, it's one thing. But the commute that I have, like I pass more livestock than I do cars. And right. so I will set my cruise on 71 and it's speed limit 65 and I just cruise to the office. But if there's no traffic and you've got somebody in the left-hand lane and they're not passing, they need to get over. Yes, so. I got gotcha. you. Um, another one that is a little bit more serious um, that I don't think is going to really go anywhere is there's a, a death by dignity right. um, that has actually passed in other states um, that is law in other states. I it's think scary. Oregon and Washington. But what it will allow is that um, people eight, ages 18 is where it starts or older, if they are given some kind of terminal illness, there's a process where like multiple doctors would have to sign off on it. But if they're given a terminal illness, they can decide whether or not they want to quote unquote die by mm. dignity. And I think it's just a, it's a slippery slope because if you think about an 18 year old that is struggling, um, with their mental health, I mean, who's to say that depression is not, um, a terminal illness, right. um, depending on whether or not they've gone undergone treatment for it. And you have multiple doctors sign off by saying that life in general for this person is a terminal illness and they want to die by dignity right. at 18 years old. Can you imagine being a parent of an 18 year old right. that, that wants to make that decision and will be legally able to make that right. decision? Right. It's I scary. Th yeah, it is. And I think that, you know, not, not to get into issues apart from what JMI deals with, but I think the concern is that, you know, we, we are living in a culture that does not value life in all forms. Mm -hmm. And I think that is an issue. So yep. um, moving on to some non-policy related Florida news, just real quick. Uh, I didn't know this. Mm -hmm. uh, several Ukrainian soldiers who have lost limbs in the conflict with Russia uh, have been fitted with prosthetics and are undergoing rehabilitation in Orlando at a facility in Orlando. The soldiers are being helped by the Revived Soldiers Ukraine Charity, which rehabilitates soldiers with complex injuries. That's amazing. The charity's fitted six soldiers already 
with prosthetic legs at a cost of over $160,000, and they have a really long waiting list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the program has rehabilitated 20 soldiers so far and is led by Orlando resident uh, Erna DeCipio. Yeah, well, really, Orlando, like this is not the first time I've heard a story like this come out of Orlando. I think this is amazing, but um, UCF in particular has an amazing um I don't know the official name of it, but it's a prosthetics program. And we've actually, uh, we had a guy uh, from there at our tech summit last year um, that he works with kids and he fits uh, prosthetic devices. It's a nonprofit that fits prosthetic devices on kids that um, have, you know, either were born with an abnormality or they lost a limb in an accident. Um, And he, he, it, these limbs look like like Iron Man, and they make them just feel like right. um, like they are unstoppable. And I think that's great. So I've, Orlando in general is just doing great right. on that. And so well, there's so much creativity with mm-hmm. Full Sail and uh, animation right. and the gaming right. and UCF. There's so much creativity going on there. Yeah, and a regulatory environment that yeah. allows them to do that. Yeah, amen. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, uh, okay, I'm going to ask you. Uh, if you know the answer to this question, but TripAdvisor came out with the top 10 list of beaches um, in the U.S., and Florida has two beaches on that list, um, and they're coming in at number two and number six. So we did not get the number one beach um, in the U.S., but we got the second best beach in the U.S. and the sixth best beach in the U.S. Could you name what they are? And you could just give like a general I would uh, guess, region. I would number guess two, what do you think? Walton County. Which would be up in the in the panhandle. No. Uh, my top two were Walton County and Sarasota. Okay. Well, um, it is Siesta Beach, yep. uh, Siesta Key, Florida. and Is that uh, two or six? That's number two. Okay. And then number six is Henderson Beach State Park, which is in Destin. Okay. So, I was close, yep, Walton County. Yep. You, but you had it. Yeah, you had it flipped. That's yeah. not the second, but that it's is. The, yeah. the sixth okay. is um, that beach in the Panhandle. Right. So. Right. Um, uh, of course, Hawaii, uh, Maui, I can't even, I can't even pronounce the beach name, but it's in Maui was up there. Um, Georgia got one, um, Jekyll Island is, it came in at number three. Um, most of them are Hawaii, actually Oregon got one. Oh, come on. They're just trying to have diversity, equity, and inclusion. They are. Oregon, no way. Really, on TripAdvisor, Maine actually got one too. These are places I've never been to. Um, and then, unfortunately, we're tied with California for also having two yeah, that's, beaches. Yeah, you can't trust two. a survey anymore because everybody's worried about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So Yeah. One more thing I think is, yeah. is worth mentioning. Um, yesterday, the SCOTUS uh, started hearing uh, cases related to student debt right, cancellation. Right. Yep. And while this is a national um, story, it obviously has implications for Florida. But there was some rallies that were held at the Capitol. Um, and Senator Elizabeth Warren... Um, spoke and she made a statement that every student has a right to a quality education regardless of if they were born into a wealthy family. What do you think about that? Well, I think the irony has been lost on Senator Elizabeth Warren. Essentially what she is uh, saying without realizing it is that that is the best argument 
for school choice, for mm-hmm. parental choice, yep. and for uh, accountability. And we have that uh, here in the state of Florida, and she doesn't even realize what she yep, said. Yep, that's what we say all the time when we make the case for school choices. Right. It doesn't matter your income level, your zip code, whether or not you have uh, special needs or disabilities. Every student should have access to a quality education and should not be forced to go to their government-funded right. school. That's right. Um, and, and and we, you said the word access. We believe in access. We don't believe they have a right. No, that's nobody a complete, has a right yeah, that's to con, that's an education, different. especially a free education. Right, right. Um, that we know is not actually Certainly free. Certainly they should have access to it. Sure. Yeah. And they do. Yep. All right. Well, thank you, Logan. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, I think maybe we'll fire Sal uh, and, and keep you full time. To the rest of our listeners, thank you for listening to another edition of Spill the Tea. I'm Bob McClure, president of the James Madison Institute, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next time. Thank you for listening to Spill the Tea. For more content from the James Madison Institute, follow us on social media or check out our website at jamesmadison.org.